If you will, turn back in your Bibles. We're in Romans chapter 3. We will be working through verses 1 through 11. And what we have in our text is the Apostle Paul, as you and I know, wrestling with his own family, wrestling with his own Jewish brethren. He is being what God has told us we should all be, and that is our brother's keeper. It's a remarkable thing to be in a world full of trouble and difficulty and challenges. And to watch uh, behavior collectively and socially, and to also marvel that there are very few people ever interested in interceding or intervening. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that our society is fundamentally paralyzed when it comes to doing something about wrongs? We've been conditioned that way. You've been conditioned that way. Most people are couch potatoes watching criminal behavior and not even praying about it. You've been conditioned that way. Well, the Apostle Paul wasn't that way because of a major impetus of grace in his life. And again, what we're dealing with with Romans 3, and, and we're glad to have visitors in the house so you can pick up wherever you can, get a nugget out of what we're t- talking about. But this is a running commentary. We are working through the book of Romans. We are in the middle of a conversation. And whenever you come in the middle of a conversation, there's a lot that you did not hear. So take what you can and may the Lord bless you with it. The way in which the apostle is working through Romans 3 If you're careful to look at it, he is now engaging his Jewish brethren in a dialogue. From chapter 1 to chapter 3, it's all been monologue. It's been Paul declaring God's righteousness in the context of our New Year's verse theme, right? Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for therein is God's righteousness revealed. I told you the book of Romans is about righteousness. It's about God's righteousness. And in reality, all of human life, all of the world, all of our conversations, all of the cacophony that goes on in society is really around a fundamental premise, right and wrong. You'll you'll remember that from now on. You'll remember that most heated discussions and debates in any context, whatever the, the event is, whatever the subject is, it's all about right and wrong. You and I never really get heated or agitated or focused or committed to stand and defend anything if it's not under the presupposition that there is a right and a what? Wrong. You need to know that. And so as men would argue about right and wrong in many different petty areas, God, he argues too about what is right. What is right? And so righteousness is really the hallmark of the book of Romans, and it is the hallmark of the people of God. And what Paul is doing is defending the fact that the gospel can help any human being get the righteousness of God right in a way in which it can help you. However, he has chosen, and rightly so, to actually wrestle rhetorically, wrestle theologically, wrestle philosophically, wrestle historically with his own Jewish brethren. And I think I closed last week trying to impress that upon your heart. It's one thing for you and I to go out there and cross the world and try to reach people for Jesus. It's another thing to do it right in your own neighborhood. 
It's another thing to try to do it in your own home. Am I making some sense? How intimidating it is to be obligated by God to not talk about taking a plane trip to Africa or to China or to India, but right in your own apartment complex or right on your job or right in your school, which is why Jesus told the apostles when he gave them the authority to go, go ye into all the world, start at home start at home. So what the Apostle Paul is doing, I just want to give a foundation for our uh, debate now because we're going into debate mode and you, you really will have to think with debate mode is Paul is making sure that he's not going to be guilty of averting the Jews and going to the Gentiles because he believes that the Gentiles are more open to hear him than his own Jewish brethren. But see, if he were to do that, he would not be like my master because my master first came unto his own. He came to his own Jewish people. He wrestled with them. He toiled with them. He witnessed to them. He bore record of the truth as a Jew to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And so that would be an ethic for you and I. If we want to get all high and mighty about what's right, start in your own house. Now we can close with the doxology. Okay, so under, under our, our first point, what I want you to consider is a suppositional argument. While there is a stitch, while there's a stitch, a thread of self-righteousness in the garment of man's delusional inherent goodness, while there's a stitch in the garment of man's assumption that he is right by nature, while there's an assumption on your part or mine that we have inherent goodness, the grace of God does not matter to you. When you actually think you have intrinsic qualities by which you can commend yourself to God, like I'm not as bad as the other person, you're deluded. But more than that, as long as you are thinking you're all right, you don't need grace. And while you don't need grace, you are spurning the only opportunity to get right with God. And this is where Paul is now going to take up their argument. I want you to get it. They are about to argue that fundamentally they don't need God. But if you are right, Paul, then you are actually making the whole matter of what God did and bringing the Torah to the people of the Jews and then the Torah through the people of the Jews to the Gentiles. If you're arguing, Paul, that we are all no different, all sinners in need of grace. His argument with them is going to be they are assuming that they have intrinsic worth, but there is no evidence for it. And they need to submit to the logical syllogistic argument that Paul is making that the only escape from our sin is a righteousness that God has provided for us outside of ourselves. Did that make some sense? All right, now notice how the verse opens. We're going to walk through the verses. Verse 1, verse 1 says, notice what it says. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there in circumcision? Now, Paul is lifting their arguments up as a retort to everything he said in Romans 1 and 2. Because Romans 1 and 2 has basically said, right, 
whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, if you don't keep the law, you're just as bad as the Gentile. Right. And if the Gentiles do keep the law in their heart, they're better than the Jew. And so the argument will be on the part of the Jew. Then what what advantage was it for us to even meet God back in the days of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, etc.? Do you do you can you can hear what they're getting at? Then what's the point? And the Apostle Paul is going to lay out the point here in verse one. Notice what he says uh, as he deals with them. What advantage then hath the Jew or what profit is there of circumcision? And Paul says in verse two, much every way, chiefly. And this is what he really means when he says chiefly, primarily, fundamentally. Here's the benefit of having been a Jew at that time. Unto you first did God reveal himself. Now, I want you to capture that because Paul has already argued that theme is inherent in our New Year's verse. Is it not? I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel will never make me ashamed. The gospel will never let me down. I won't ever be embarrassed by the claims of the gospel, Paul says. The gospel does what it says. And by the way, the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. What Paul is arguing is, here's the benefit of you having received the revelation of God in a more particular and specific way. God called you near to him. God revealed himself to you. God manifested to you his plan and purposes. What are you asking? What advantage was it for us to know God and then follow his his, uh, laws of circumcision and sacrifices? Because God brought you near to him. He made himself known to you in ways in which he did not make known to other people. And by the way, he gave you the oracles. He gave you the word of God. And by you, the whole world should come to know God. That's the advantage. Literally in the Greek grammar, the uh, term really means to be uh, above or superior. What makes the Jew superior? than the Gentile. It's an arrogant assertion, but please bear with me. I know what Paul is doing. He's arguing with his Jewish brethren. He's not talking to you and I. So you and I are what? Ear hustling in on a dialogue between two other people. If he was talking with me, I'd come in and say, hey, Paul, hold it, hold it. I didn't say I was superior. Y'all talk like that because the fundamental argument that God would raise against his own people is they arrogantly believed in their own self-righteousness that they were better than the Gentiles. And Jesus and Paul is saying, no way. And that's what he's about to argue now. Am I making some sense? Now, y'all know that because you know you think you're better than somebody else, so stop acting crazy like you don't know what I'm talking about. There's at least one person on the planet you think you're better than. And when you get to God, you're going to say, hey, I'm better than her. I'm better than him. All right. And what Paul is about to do is destroy a false premise that they're setting up. And I want you to see that in the argument. Look at verse three. Notice what he says in verse three. Romans three, three. For what if some did not believe? You guys see that? Now, what he's doing here, he's actually carrying their argument through because Paul has now echoed all of the prophets of the Old Testament. And all of the prophets of the Old Testament have left a recorded document that over and over and over, Israel disobeyed God. 
The indictment of the Old Testament is very clear. They have failed to believe God. And all Paul is doing is advancing all of the Old Testament up front and laying it out before his Jewish brethren and saying, let me remind you, not only of what Malachi said or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the other prophets, but this is what Jesus said. He said it very clearly. You have the law and none of you what? Keep it. And the first martyr of the New Testament church, what's his name? Step in. What did they do? They killed him for this same reason. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Got to keep up with me, sis. Remember, we were talking about how if you are circumcised in the flesh, but don't keep Torah, it's as if you are uncircumcised. And I told you how radical that was, how radical it is for you to take stock in your genealogical tie to Abraham, but your conduct is heathen. Paul says your behavior uncircumcises you. Now listen to how Stephen, the brother that they killed, spoke about it in verse 51. Here's what he said. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You see how the concept of uncircumcision is carried into the New Testament argument? Do you see it? See, that's what got to them. Because they were boasting, as you learned last week, we're Abraham's seed. We're the circumcision. And this is where, you know, the derogatory sort of uh, defaming pejorative, the goyim, was brought into play throughout Israel's history. As if they are better than other people because of a little flesh cut off of their reproductive organ. And we learned last week, their sinfulness makes it that one day they wake up and that little flesh is back there again. They are yet uncircumcised because circumcision never saved anyone. Just like water baptism doesn't save you. Just like speaking in tongues doesn't save you. Just like works of the law cannot save anyone. If you're saved, it's going to be by the grace of God Almighty. But, and so now the argument that I'm raising, the argument that I'm raising is a universal argument because if you adopt the premise that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. If you adopt that premise, which we do, who are clear on doctrine, then you're going to be really having this debate with all kinds of people for the rest of your life. Because people by nature are like the Jews. You know what that is? Very religious very religious. They love to talk about how they don't do this and how they don't do that and how they do this and how they don't do that. Well, what you're doing when you do that is you're commending your own righteousness. And then the Christian has to come along and simply tell you, sorry, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And what we're about to read in a moment is that there's none good. No, not one. So who's telling the truth? You or God. Do you guys see where we're going? So stay with me because I know thinking is hard in the 21st century. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hearted ears, you do always resist too. This is serious. Because the Holy Ghost works through its prophets to bring the word to the people, which is the written code that you and I have to wrestle with. And they hated it. And so frequently they just killed the prophet. Like they did Stephen. 
And this is what Paul is dealing with in our text. He's dealing with the assertion there was no benefit then. There was no benefit for us doing all that we do. If at the end of the day, we're just like the Gentiles. And then they advance the argument, as I said in verse three, uh, for Paul, for what if some did not believe? Now what Paul is about to deal with is a really flawed inference. Please listen to what's going on here. Here's what he says in the latter part of verse three. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Shall the unbelief of the people that God is calling to trust him and follow him and serve him, uh, shall their unbelief, shall their failure make God a failure? And I want us to think it through for a moment because, again, now we're dealing with logic here. Okay, we're we're dealing with arguments on premises. Okay, and here's the fundamental premise. Israel has failed. Ipso facto, therefore, God has failed. That's a flawed argument, would it not be? And what Paul is about to do is build on that. But now stay with me for a moment. You might say, yes, pastor, that's a flawed argument. But you probably have made that fallacy, too. You probably have committed the fallacy of making the assumption that the thing that fails is an indicator that the person that made the thing has failed too. Are you following what I'm saying? Right, and so don't get mad because, you know, we in church, I'm going to get you a little bit, all right? Right, so a a lot of times uh, children will want to blame their failures on their parents. Right, and and they they only get 10% of that, okay? That's all they get, kids only get 10%. And, and the parents will often want to blame their own failures on the kids. This is an ugly symbiosis. Y'all do know that it exists, though, where the parents will try to make the kids to be the model so that they can hide behind the model of the kids and, and, and not be culpable for their own sinfulness. Well, so the argument that's going on here is that the Jews are saying, OK, if we all have failed, then that makes God a failure. The implications of this are serious because what this would incur is that you and I can look at the behavior of the people of God and through and through in every every area of their disobedience, we can blame God for it. Well, this is what goes on in our culture at the psychological level. The psychological institutes love to always blame every bit of the problem of the child on the parents. Am I making some sense? But as much as the children are related to the parents, in a correlative fashion, the children are not the parents. And as much as God is related to the people that he is commending to the world, God is not the people. And so we got to get the argument right, do we not? Right. Now, what Paul is about to do, and I'm going to do it with him by exposition, is I'm going to deliver you and I from a fallacy of asserting that the thing made being flawed also means that the thing that by which it was made is flawed. That has to be understood and refuted as a fallacy. Again, point number one. I'm going to deal with three subpoints because this is important. An argument against the wisdom of God. You see that? An argument against the wisdom of God. And I can talk a long time here because you got all kind of people mad at God in the world. They're mad at God for the way he created the world. They're mad at God for the way he created human beings. Today we got God, people mad at God for them having been born a boy, having been born a girl. Stay with me. We, we have created these, these, these misnomers about being able to rightly blame the thing that made the thing that does not like the fact that it was made the way that it is. 
And then you have whole institutions making money off of that blame, off of that argument. We are presently at this hour just about to completely annihilate God from the equation because we don't like what God did. Stay with me. I know I'm making sense. The world we are trying to move into in terms of transhumanism is an argument against God not being good enough as he created the things that he made. Do you hear me? Now, we got a better plan than God. But Isaiah 29 makes it very clear. Who you who are you, O clay, to say to the potter, you have no idea what you're doing. And that's going to be the argument. Let me make a, a couple of subpoint categories. Subpoint A in your first point. The treasure of truth is preserved in it in spite. Do you guys see that? The treasure of truth is preserved in it in spite. What are you talking about, Pastor? I'm talking about the potter analogy. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 14 and 15. I'm going to use it. The Bible is clear that God is the potter and we are the what? It's really true. Job said it. Moses said it. Jeremiah said it. Listen to this. Jeremiah 32, 14 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this which is open, and put them in a what? Put them in a what? Put this document in an earthen vessel, watch this, that it may continue many days. Y'all got that? Now, some of us know the context behind this. Going to teach you a lesson. The contents inside the vessel is different than the vessel itself. The goal of the vessel is to contain the content. It's not the goal of the content to, to contain the vessel. The role of the vessel is to be a covering, a protection, a mechanism of preservation until the contents get where they are supposed to be. The content here are the promises of God. It's the word of God. It's the oracles of God. And the promises of God here that were given to Jeremiah is given in a very unusual context that's going to make my argument. Jeremiah has been put in prison by Zedekiah, the king of Judah. And the reason he's there is because Jeremiah is doing what Isaiah does, Hosea does, Amos does, saying to the king, you are wicked. You're wicked. Your princes are wicked. Israel is wicked. Hey, by the way, Babylon is on the door. Now, I've been telling you for 20 years, says Jeremiah, that Babylon was coming. You've been wanting to throw me in pits with no water. You've been wanting to kill me. You've been wanting to do everything you possibly could because I've been telling you the truth. And here we are now, the day is coming when Babylon is on the door and you want to throw me in prison. But the reality is you're in prison already because you didn't obey God's word. Am I making some sense? Now, Jeremiah's in prison and guess what God does to encourage Jeremiah about the outcome of things. He sends his uncle to Jeremiah and his uncle comes to Jeremiah while Jeremiah's in prison. Jeremiah, man, I got some land and I want to sell it to you because you are the first inheritor of the land. Now, that's kind of crazy when the whole nation is about to be completely uprooted, everybody deported all around the world, and uncle is coming to sell you some land. You're ready to think he's a crook, aren't you? Because, you know, everybody knows bombs about to drop, the whole land's about to be smithery. Here comes your uncle, tricky uncle, saying, Jeremiah, and here you are, you're in a bad situation. You're in jail. You're in jail, Jeremiah. I know you got a problem here, but look, man, I got some land I want to sell you. I'm trying to pull out. I'm trying to pull out, man. I'm trying to pull out. You know, I believe you now. You want to buy the land? And guess what God tells Jeremiah to do? Jeremiah, buy the land. That's what this language is about. Buy the land. 
purchased the land, Jeremiah. I know how contradictory it looks because the land represents the disobedience of Israel. It represents their rebellion. It represents them violating God's law. And in a minute, the land is going to be desolate. The Assyrians have already come in and wiped out the 10 northern tribes, the two southern tribes to whom Jeremiah preaches, the Judites. They're getting ready to go in prison in just a little while. Are y'all following what I'm saying? Why would I buy land in a territory that is condemned to be salt pits? I would buy it if God told me to buy it because God sees the end from the beginning. God knows what the outcome is after the trial. This is what we're learning in our pilgrim's progress. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. So if God says, yes, you want to buy that, you know, some of y'all know it in stocks and bonds. Buy low, right? Sell high. Y'all know how it goes. (laughs) Buy low, sell high. The argument here is that inside this earthen vessel is a treasure. And if you judge God by the vessel, you miss the reality. And what the Bible teaches you and I very clearly, does it not? Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency may be of God and not of us. And what that means is if people look to try to determine the measure, quality, the extent of the character of God by merely looking at me, they're going to miss the whole thing. I'm an earthen vessel. You're an earthen vessel. Am I making some sense? We might be useful, but we are earthen vessels. What that means is earthen vessels by nature are inherently flawed. Am I making some sense? They are inherently flawed. You won't find a vessel that you won't find a flaw in. The question is not, is it flawed? The question is, is it useful? Somebody going to get that in a minute. See, people can find your flaws. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you still being used by God? Does God know how to use flawed, cracked vessels to contain and hold and advance his flawless promises? Can God, who is the potter, use a cracked pot to get a message that is able to save sinners to where God wants it to be? And that's what's going on here. Am I making some sense? It's extremely important for you to get that. And there's so much in the Jeremiah 32, 33 account. I'll touch on it a little back, a little bit back in a minute. But in Jeremiah 32, 14 and 15, let's go to uh, Jeremiah 32, 15. And then one more verse, because we need to build the argument. I want you to capture this. You need to fill it. I do, too. For thus saith the Lord, uh, Lord God of hosts, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Do you see it? Do you see it? So now at the moment. They're being deported. At the moment, the land's being emptied out. At the moment, people are being killed everywhere. But some 70 years down the line, there will be a restoration. Y'all do know some history here, right? 70 years in Babylon captivity, and some will begin to make it back home. Am I making sense? Here's what Paul said in Romans 3 that we want to nail down and keep moving. Shall the unbelief of some people make the promises of God non-effect. And what is the answer? No, because God can't lie. God can't change. And God can't what? And it doesn't matter how many times we fail, God cannot fail. Now, if that's true, the failure on our part, I want you to get this. When we fail, it's not like God doesn't know it. Did you get what I just said? 
When we fail, God doesn't go, oh, my goodness. They just, do you see this, Michael? Gabriel, do you see this? You see what these people did to me? No. When we fail, it doesn't mean that God has failed. This is where our theology has to be grounded in a recognition of God's omniscience, God's goodness, God's immutability, his impeccableness, and God's sovereignty. I know those are a bunch of big words. Look them up on your Google right now while I'm preaching. It's important for you to get it, though. Right, because here is the issue. It is true that the people of God should be representing God, but they never have to represent him perfectly. The adequacy with which we are to represent God is in faithfully sharing what God's word has said. To the degree that we get God's word right, that's all we need to do. Am I making some sense? Don't get me wrong. We are not discarding obedience. We're about to nail that down. But what we are asserting is God has never, ever expected any one of his children that he created to get it right perfectly. This is going to be our argument under our second point. So sub point B in our outline goes like this. Sub point B says the tragedy of sinfulness is what? The tragedy of sinfulness is what? All right. First sub point is the treasure of truth that's preserved in that in the vessel in spite of the brokenness of the vessel. This is true, is it not? So if you think about Adam as a vessel, you think about Cain, uh, uh, Abel as a vessel. If you think about Enoch as a vessel, think about Noah as a vessel. Think about Abraham as a vessel. Think about Sarah as a vessel. Think about Naomi as a vessel. Think about Hannah as a vessel. Y'all following me? Think about David as a vessel. Think about Solomon as a vessel. Think hard. Think about Samson as a vessel, okay? Think about Samson as a vessel. Think about Peter as a vessel. James and John, think about them as vessels. Are they not vessels? Did not the letter make it from Abel all the way to Jesus? Did not the contract make it all the way to the birth of the Son of God? Was God not able to keep his promises all the way up to the birth of the Son of the living God? That means God, who is perfect, knows how to use cracked vessels to pass the promise from one person to another person until it terminates in the golden will of God. Makes sense, doesn't it? It's important then for you to understand this argument because people will tell you, you know, I'm not listening to God because when I look at you, you're an absolute mess. And what you're supposed to do is go, you're right. I'm an absolute mess. And God has an answer for it. And we'll work it through. But see, remember what I said in my opening um, argument? My opening argument was, if there's a stitch, one thread of self-righteousness in the garment of your delusional goodness, you will not see the necessity of grace. If you think you're something that you're not, you will despise the grace of God. Right, Solomon said it in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 2. He made it very clear in the Proverbs. Every man will proclaim his own goodness. This is what he's teaching. And you hear that everywhere, right? I'm good. I'm good, right? Um, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 2. Since you pulled that up, since you you pulled my card, I got to actually find it now. Proverbs chapter 20, 20, verse 21, verse 2. Let's see if that'll be it. She's getting there. Every way of man is right in his own eyes. See it? Now think about that. That's crazy. Every way of man is right in his own eyes. 
Do you understand how pathologically blinded we are to make that assertion? Like everything you do is right? You have to be insane. The record is against you, ma'am. The record is against you. Well, I told y'all, Miss Fannie Willis, she should have never stepped on the stage. Y'all know that she should have just said, recuse herself, sorry. Because there was an assumption of righteousness there that made her think she could pass the scrutiny. And she was deluded. And just like she's exposed, a lot of people on the last day will be exposed for not having a righteousness that could stand up to the scrutiny of judgment. Am I making some sense? And and it's, it's embarrassing, is it not? Don't you be embarrassed by God having allowed you to live all these days on his land, breathe his air, eat his food, enjoy his life, enjoy his blessings, the gray matter that allowed you to get all the wealth you did and then end up on that day not having an adequate righteousness to stand before God. Right. So what is the argument that we uh, assert, according to verse 3, that the tragedy of sinfulness is not something that God did not purpose. He purposed it. Are you with me? Listen to Romans 5.20. And, and now, for those of you who have never heard the gospel, what you're hearing is an argument for the gospel. And the argument for the gospel is always, it's always God saves sinners apart from the sinner's work so that God gets all the glory and the saving of the sinner. Please listen very carefully. Here's what Paul says. He's still building his argument. We haven't gotten to the first imperative yet. The first imperative is Romans 6, 11. So Paul's still building his argument. Moreover, the law entered in. We're talking about the law, right? Because we're talking about works. Moreover, the law entered in in order that the offense might what? Right. So, you know, this is what we learned with the parlor, did we not? When you use the broom and sweep the law, everybody comes to discover if they're honest men and women that we don't keep the law. Who in here wants to stand up right now and say, you know, Pastor Jesse, I do everything that God tells me to do. Yeah, just like I thought. You and me. Why? Why? Remember what God says, you are to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's saying. And these are only two commandments. Everything else hangs on them. But there's not a person in the room who has ever loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've never done it. You don't have the capacity in yourself to even know the measure of your love. And you need to be honest because sometimes you said you loved someone or something and you came to realize, oh, I was lying. I came short. Am I telling the truth? Right. So now here's the comforting thing about my God. Are you ready? God knows that you can't love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength without him helping you. Right. This is the lovely thing about our God. He will tell you what to do. Like we tell our kids what to do. And we know in many cases they won't do what we tell them to do. But we still got to tell them to do it because the goal of the law is to convince you of sin. That's why it entered in to make sin exceedingly sinful. Right. I told you about the analogy when my wife first got her car and that thing is AI dominant. This is an AI dominant vehicle. What that means is all you got to do is sit in it and it really drives you. You don't drive the thing. 
Now, the first time I ever drove a car that when I was leaning to go into the other lane, it forced me back into the middle of the lane. And then it made all kind of noise like I was sinning. So, so, so by, by the time I got to my location, I'm as guilty as sin. I, I feel like I don't know how to drive. I need to go back to driving school because the thing is showing my guilt every time I drive. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I, I was very happy. I was very happy. A few years later, because my wife said, Jesse, you, 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 do you hear the thing? Do you hear the thing? Very happy a couple years later when she cut that thing off. I didn't know you could cut it off. She cut it off and we went to, on a long trip and I felt so good being sinless. And that is the way we are when we try to get right with God on our own works. Law comes and we actually want to throw the law away. Because it makes us feel like we're all right because the law is not telling us if you look at a woman with lust in your eye, you're guilty of adultery. Am I making some sense? Now, now I was still driving just as bad as I was without, <laughs> without that little beeper in the car controlling me, okay? So I knew internally I was still sinning, but it was very good that I wasn't under the works of the law because the law will condemn you, will it not? I didn't want to ride in the car with her. See, I didn't want to ride, you know, because she was always, do you see what you're doing? Okay, 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 right. I'm so glad grace came in. Now, grace does not mean that you're not still sinning. But it puts you in a different position with God. Well, you're not condemned. And just as an analogy... I'm going to finish the story. I'm going to finish the story. Just as an analogy, it did make me work harder at driving in between the lanes. Because I got a little car that goes fast, and I like driving my car instead of her car. So when I get in her car, I adjust now. I drive just like a chauffeur now. She would probably say not. Subpoint B, the tragedy of sinfulness purposed in it. Here's what God said in Isaiah 48, verse 8. I want you to capture this. I want to start back at maybe verse 6. Isaiah 48, verse 6. Here's what God is about to do. He's getting ready to tell Israel, Israel, listen, you've been rebelling against me for a long time. And I just want you to know I know it. Now listen to what he says. You have heard, you've seen all this. And will you not say what I tell you to say? I have showed you new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. Now, we're coming in on another argument. Here's what God is doing. From verse 1 all the way up to verse 6, God has been telling Israel, every time I do something to show you that I'm God, you either deny me as God or you actually steal my glory and say you did it. Here we go. And now God says, so what I do from time to time is I pull the wool of your eyes. I don't do anything until we get right up to the event. And then I pull back the curtains and show you that I'm in control of the event. So you won't say, I already knew that. Now, this gives you some insight into God's rebellious children with him. They're constantly wanting to steal his glory. Now, you don't do that. I get that. But now listen to what it says in verse 7. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Verse 7 says, they are created now. Like God is doing a lot of things. He's always doing things. He's always creating. He's always working. You and I don't always see it. Sometimes he shows it to us. And not from the beginning. Even before the day when you heard them, when you heard them not. Lest you should say, behold, what? I knew it. 
Like even God says, I can't even let you ear hustle in on my plan because you're going to go around sending texts that you knew it before it happened. God says a lot of times I had to hide what I do so that when it happens, you won't lie. Now look at verse eight. Boy, these are some rough kids God has, doesn't he? Listen to what verse eight says. Yay, you didn't hear them. Yay, you didn't know them. Yay, from the time that your ear was not open. And that's a metaphor for being naive and blind. We've talked about that before, right? Your ears open means you be, you're brought into maturity. Notice what he says. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and you were called a transgressor from the womb. Do y'all see that? This is what God said about Israel. This is why, remember Moses, when God had Moses to bring them out into the wilderness, and Moses says, Lord, what kind of crazy people are these you got me dealing with? He says, Moses, look, as soon as you did, they're going to go a-whoring from you. God always knew that they were sinners. God knew Adam and Eve would sin, did he not? He said, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Did it happen? Of course, because God knew it. The issue is, what, how does God operate with this omniscience, particularly in the context where he gives men and women volition, where he gives them the responsibility to do or not do what God calls him to do? That's the issue here. Do you understand that? Right. Because it must be understood that God will tell you what to do and you and I are obligated to do it. And if we don't, then God has the right to bring consequences. He's our God. Does that make sense? Right. This is what Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter three, because the argument about to come up now is how is it that if God knows that we are flawed creatures, that he can still bring judgment? He can still bring judgment because we volitionally rebel against his law. Am I making sense? It does not matter that. And it is true that you and I are sinful by nature. It is true. We are born from the womb transgressors. It is true. Didn't didn't David make that clear? In my mother's womb, I was conceived in iniquity and sin. And then the psalmist said it again. He says, we go astray from the womb speaking lies. You don't have to teach your children how to lie. Did any of y'all give your children lessons on how to lie? (laughs) At the youngest age, right? Some of them are diabolical at two years old. Jelly all around their mouth. Did you, did, did you stick your face in the jelly? No. No. Jelly all around their mouth. No. Right. And the beauty of what I'm, I'm laying out for you is going to be seen here shortly. That God knows that we are sinners by nature. We are cracked vessels. We are marred vessels. We are flawed vessels. But the potter himself is not flawed. The potter is not marred. The potter can still get his plan done even though he uses more vessels. This is critically important. And for a sinner, this is a hopeful proposition. Listen, therefore, to subpoint C in your outline. The truthful God is sovereign over it. What am I talking about? The treasure of truth inside the vessel. The tragedy of sinfulness purposed even though the vessel breaks. The vessel is flawed, and that's because the truthful God is what? Sovereign over it. Now, when I use this adjectival expression, the truthful God, what we are saying is God doesn't lie. Jeremiah 10.10 tells us he is the true and the living God. Right, so if God doesn't lie, then the only prevarication that's going on is with us. Would you agree? 
And if God still loves us, does not God in his sovereignty know how to manage lying children? Pastor, what you talking about? I'm just saying, you got children that lie, you manage them. God's children are liars. He manages them. And this here is designed to highlight two qualities, if you don't know, that Paul is going to deal with in Romans chapter 3 all the way up to Romans chapter 9. And that is the quality of God's justice and the quality of God's mercy. People are always asking, Pastor, why does God allow sin? In order to demonstrate his justice. In order to demonstrate that he's a just God. Did that make some sense, you guys? It's important for you to know. Don't we have a judicial system? Don't we have a legal system? Don't we have a jurisprudence doctrine and uh, um, a legal system by which things can be adjudicated when people transgress laws? Why do we have that? In order to demonstrate that there is such thing as justice. And justice proceeds from the nature of God. This is what righteousness is about. And so from time to time, what God does when his creatures sin against him is he punishes the sin. He has a right to. The wages of sin is what? That's right. And so God will punish it and you and I will go, but all God is doing is saying, I'm a righteous God. You don't get to rebel against me. That's making sense, right? But that's not the only quality that God communicates, because if it were, none of us would be in this room right now. The quality that emerges in tandem with God's justice is God's mercy. And this is what Paul will argue in Romans 9. What if God willing to show his justice on vessels of rebellion and his mercy on vessels that actually get it? And that's what I'm about to talk about now. Vessels that actually get it. People that actually get this. So I agree that the treasure of truth is preserved in spite. You do? You have to do because do you know what? Jesus assumed a human nature, didn't he? So if our humanity was so bad that it could not be redeemable or aid in redemption, Jesus would not have taken on a human nature. He took it on to redeem the cracked vessel. And he did, did he not? And he's telling you and I to hang in there for a minute because that crack is getting ready to be fixed. Right, it's so important. Point number two in our outline, therefore, then, the sovereignty of God is not what? Capricious. I need to talk about that. I don't want to be, I don't want to get bogged down because people don't think theology through a lot. But a lot of times when you hear people use the term sovereignty of God, they are basically admitting they don't know what they're talking about. Right. Well, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And what they're saying is, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Okay, you don't know what's going on, but you ain't got to blame it on the sovereignty of God. Because the sovereignty of God is a specific category of God's knowledge and power working together to govern the events. Did that make some sense? These categories of God's knowledge and power are always working events so that all the events work out the way God wants them to. Ephesians 1.11, listen to it again. Listen to it. I'm just going to give you a few verses. When you talk about the sovereignty of God, you are not making yourself smart with people if you're just fundamentally saying, I don't know what God is up to. Do you understand that? If you use the term sovereignty, you better be ready to explain it because sovereignty can also be an excuse for sin. 
It can be an excuse for people living in rebellion against God. It can be an excuse. Of course, it can be an excuse. Do I have to defend my argument here? You'll see something going on in the world. It's wrong. It's wrong as I don't know what. Is that right? And everything in you, if you're a righteous person, if you're a good person, if you're a moral person, if you're a thoughtful person, everything rages and you say, fix that. Is that true? But then you default on the sovereignty of God. Well, God's sovereign, that means he wanted it to happen. Now, all of a sudden, you are creating unnecessary contradictions in what's going on and with God's character. Would you agree with that? God is holy and just and God is perfect, right? And God cannot tolerate iniquity. God cannot countenance evil. So then why does it happen? It happens in order that God might prove multiple things. One is that the people that did it were wrong. Secondly, that we are obligated as our brother's keeper to fix that problem. Thirdly, when we don't, we are just as culpable as the person that committed that crime because God is calling us to bear record to his justice. Am I making some sense? And that can go further on down the line. You and I are never to do what Paul is about to be uh, condemned for. Let us do evil that sin may abound. That's the argument in the text. Y'all saw that, right? That's the argument. So if your concept of sovereignty fundamentally says, let us do evil that may, that sin may abound, then you are legitimately what they call an antinomian. Anti means against. Nomos means law. And this is the fundamental argument against the gospel. Am I making some sense? The gospel is argued against by legalists and self-righteous people and uh, religionists because the gospel says your works will never make you right with God. And then what they do is condemn those of us who preach the gospel for saying they don't believe in obedience. They don't believe in righteousness. They don't believe in good works. All of that is a lie from hell. What we don't believe is that obedience, that good works, that your righteousness can merit acceptance before God. It's not that we don't believe in good works. Did y'all hear what I just said? We believe in good works in a way better than the legalist does because we stand with God at the perfection of his law. We say that his law should be kept. The problem is nobody's keeping it. Am I making some sense? And so those who really love God do seek to obey him. And if you walk properly with God, you will see blessings from doing it. And if you don't walk properly with God, like Israel, Israel suffered horribly. The ways of a transgressor are what? Israel knew that. They just didn't want to own it. God is the one who has to bring us to that persuasion. Listen to what he says over in verse five and six. We're going to get to that. Almost done, thanks. But if our righteousness, I'm sorry, verse four. When Paul says, for what if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God or the faithfulness of God without effect? The argument is what? God forbid. Yea, let God be what? That's what I've been saying. And every man a what? Right. So the table is set, isn't it? God's true. The rest of us are what? Right. Case closed. Now, here's the point. Your Bible will prove that to be true. Don't we quote it all the time? The latter part of Romans three will say there's none righteous. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that understand. That's exactly what David is saying. Now, think about this. 
God's law is holy, good, just and right. Would you agree? But none of us keep it. Don't you think that's a problem? Right. So stay with me now, because we are at what we call the purpose paradigm of the law. When you say the law is good, it's holy, it's just, it's right. There's no imperfection in God. The imperfection is is in who? It's in us. Now you are ready for the gospel. And short of that, you are not. Did I make some sense there? Until the law brings you to the end of yourself, where you agree with God that by the works of the law, none of us can be justified. Now you are ready for God's solution. Until then, you're going to keep arguing. Listen to what he says. God forbid, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written. He's quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 58. And this one is Psalm 51. I'm going to talk about this in a moment. That you might be justified in your what? That's what his word says. Whatever God's word says is right. We agree with that, right? All the works of the Lord are right and all of his, his, the word of the Lord is right and all of his works are done in truth. When you really investigate God's word, you will not find fault with what God says. You, are, you will try, many people do. Many people love to blame God for this, that, uh, affirm contradictions, uh, different kinds of things about God's character. But when you really study the scriptures, what you will discover is God is consistent and God's word is infallible. Notice what he says, that you might be justified in your sayings. Here's a saying. God is true and every man's a liar. I'm staying within the context of that verse. So God is willing to prove to the whole human race that that proposition is true. Did you get that? Right. And so anyone can stand up and say, God, I challenge you. Everybody else in the world, all 8 billion people, they're, they're, they're liars, but I'm not. Now, right there, you know what that person did? They made God a liar. That's a problem, isn't it? And so now what God is going to do is prove that they are deluded. And because they're deluded, they have not actually come to the end of the law. Because what the end of the law is designed for you to do, when you assess what God says, you go, you know what? God is right. I do lie. I tell little bitty white lies. My lies don't really hurt nobody. It's just, you know, I just, little bitty white lies, right? You see how you're rationalizing it? Right, but the Bible says the thought of folly is sin. The thought of folly is sin. Do you know what that means? If we violate one jot or tittle of the law of God, whole thing falls apart. You know what that means? In the day of judgment, if one sin is found on you that is not dealt with before you die, the wages of sin is what? Right, that's a problem, is it not? So the goal of the law is to bring you to a place where you seek a right standing with God outside of yourself. And that will never happen as long as you're arguing with God. Because that's what the text is doing. The text is saying we argue with God. Can you see that? Listen to what he's saying. You, you, uh, that you might be justified in your sayings and that you might overcome when you are what? Now, please hear what's, saying, what's being said. We got about 15 minutes. Please hear what, what, what is being said here. This is why I love teaching the Bible. Um, in the theological schools of thought that I'm a part of, where we do very solid exegetical, very solid expository teaching, it's called handling the text. It's called handling the text. It's called wrestling with what the text is saying. You don't skim over it. You don't jump over it. You deal with the text. That's what I'm doing with you. 
That way, when you go away from here, you know what you can say? I learned something about the Bible. I didn't just go to church and get, you know, emotionally moved and manipulated and have a little word here and don't even know what the Bible verses the pastor is dealing with. We're wrestling through the Bible, are we not? And when you wrestle through the Bible, you get to really know the mind of God. Now, what this text is telling us is that men will argue with God. Do you see it? And God and what the writer is saying, both Paul and David is saying that when men argue with God, God's going to win that argument. That's what he's saying, that you might be justified in your sayings, oh God, and that you might overcome when you are what? That's crazy. But I've told you this many times. I'm going to tell you again. When men and women don't submit to the gospel, they are judging God. They are judging that God is not right. They are judging that God's solution does not work. They are judging that they are smarter than God and that they have a better way of getting right with God than the way that God has established. That'll come home in a minute. This is the battle you're fighting. I don't care what kind of veneer they put on, how holy they look, how holy they sound. I don't quite believe that Jesus is the son of the living God. Well, you know, there's a lots of arguments as to whether or not he was even born of the tribe of Judah. You know, I've, I've read all kinds of writings about this being a myth. And, you know, there are all kinds of arguments. And when the smoke clears, it's just that they don't believe God. Are you hearing me? Right. Now, for those of you who are called to believe God, you know what you're called to do? Defend the gospel. Because if God has given you the answer to your salvation and what we're about to talk about now, don't you at least at least owe him a little bit of credit for saving you? Right. And, and the goal actually as a child of God is to become a disciple, a learner so that you can defend the claims. Right. Because a lot of people who are in the position of despising God and rejecting God and arguing against God. Are you ready? Those people are going to be saved a year from now. Because what we know is God allows you to wrestle with him. God allows you to fight with him. God allows you to, he allows some of his saved people to do it. Y'all know Jonah. Jonah's pathetic. Saved and pathetic. I don't even know sinners that act as much a fool as Jonah did. Right? God's very merciful, is he not? And so, and that's the problem with the day of judgment. The problem with the day of judgment is people go, oh God, a lot for the mercy he showed. Right. This is really the point. So what I'm saying is when you look at this text, it's remarkable that God is on trial. God is on trial in the lives of men and women. You know it because men and women say no to the gospel. It's extremely important for you to get it. So under point number two, I said the sovereignty of God is not capricious. What does that mean? God is not desperate. He's not whimsical when you and I act a fool. He's in control. Ephesians 1, 11 says, everything is working after the counsel of God's will. Did y'all see that? All right, I'm going to take you just a little bit deeper and close. You're about to go into the tunnel now. Some of y'all about to fall asleep. Just thinking logically is hard for us. What the Bible says is, at no time, from eternity past to eternity future, has God ever been surprised at the behavior of his creatures? Devils, angels, men. 
Because he sees the end from the beginning. That's called omniscience. And God doesn't see delusions. If he saw it from eternity past, he knows it's going to happen. Would you agree with that? So if he sees it happening because God doesn't create mirages, then it means it's integrated in God's purpose to allow it to come to pass. It does not mean he approves of it in the first sense of it being something he wants to occur, but he accommodates it for his overarching objective. I taught you this in the area of the five categories of God's will. Did I not go back and look them up? Okay. So there's a side of God's will where he gives you and I his precepts called the preceptive will of God. If God says you shall not steal, that means God never wants you to steal. Is that right? And yet if you do steal, that becomes part of God's sovereign plan because it happened. Is that right? Okay. it does not mean in his sovereignty he approves of it. It just means in his sovereignty he accommodates it for other purposes. The sovereignty of God, the preceptive will of God, and now the redemptive will of God. That means God knows how to redeem our evil and our sinfulness for his glory, though he does not approve of it. Am I making some sense? Right. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, don't get starry eyed with me. You do that with your kids. Right. You're not going to throw your kids away because they act like you. Am I making some sense? Right. A lot of times we will actually be way out in front of our kids when we know that we're going to give them a privilege and we know they're going to fall flat on their face. You might as well get on out in front of that because they're getting ready to tear that car up. In fact, they might tear two or three of them up. And that's why you give them hoopties because that's what I did. So now I told them to drive right. I Drive right. Drive right, okay? Drive right. Here, here's a $400 beater from Fiat. Drive right. I walk away, I say, I guarantee you they're not going to drive right. Once they put some, some music in the car, they're not going to drive right. Week later, car tow up. Only 400 bucks. Then I chide them about it and everything. They go, all right, I'll get you another one. Now I'm going to get them a $600 beater. Because they don't get the lesson the first time. They're just like their daddy. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you see how God works? That's how God works. He extends his judgments out to give you time to be persuaded that you are the sinner that you are. Right, it's important. It's important for you to get it. In whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of God who does what? Works everything after the counsel of his own will. This is why we say all things work together for good to them that love God. Good, bad, and evil. It's all working together. God governs it. He organizes it. He, he manages it. But he is never approving of evil. That's contrary to his nature. But he uses it. Isaiah chapter 45. Listen to Isaiah chapter 45. It lays it out. Verse 7. Isaiah 45, 7. You've heard it before, but hear it again. Got a few more minutes, and I want you to nail it down. Listen to it. God says, I formed the light. Did God create the light? Right. In the beginning, God said, let there be what? And he created the darkness. Did God create the darkness? All right. We're getting ready to do a little science. You got to know this. Everything has an equal and opposite to it in order for that thing to have a concrete distinction. This is called the law of individuation. If there's such thing as a man, there must be such thing as a. That's exactly right. Y'all not confused in here. Y'all confused. Okay. Can we keep talking? Yes. It's sad. 
it's sad how reprobate we are in our thinking when God in his glory creates these categories. And God never creates anything without purpose. So the, the darkness has a purpose. The darkness has a purpose. Like you and I are, are heat dissipating creatures. You and I are heat dissipating creatures. We got to sleep at night. Don't we? And you know what God does? He gives us the darkness so we can go to sleep. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Isn't it a beautiful thing? He lets you almost die for 8 to 10 to 12 hours and your body regenerates and restores. And then you wake up fresh with the sun and you're ready to do it all over again. Isn't that right? That's the doctrine of the resurrection. God's good to you. And you know what? God tells the sun to rise and set, knowing every day you're going to get up and sin against him. (laughs) I form the light. I create the darkness. I make peace. Does God make peace? And this is why we ask him for it, because, you know, have you ever been in a situation that was non-peaceful and realized you couldn't fix it? Am I am am I making some sense? Right. See, like, because if we could actually create peace, well, we would be good, wouldn't we? I'd be I would be a multi-trillionaire because I'm going to sell it to you. (laughs) It's a very precious commodity. Peace is very precious and rare. God makes peace, but he also does what? He also does what? One more time out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. God also what? All right. See, this is where once you start holding your Bible, you're going to have fights with people. Unless you know God is sovereign, unless you know God is impeccable, that is God is flawless in his character. Unless you know he's intrinsically good, that is God is not arbitrary, God is not whimsical, God is not lawless, God never violates his law. Are you keeping up with me? So when you hear a proposition in its context, you got to have a larger backdrop to know how to understand that proposition, lest you misrepresent something more important. Like this. That God creates evil does not make God evil. As we learned earlier, that God creates vessels that are flawed does not make God flawed. Y'all keeping up with me? You're learning something. It's important because there are a lot of people out there in cults and very heretical systems that will take your Bible away if you don't know how to think. Did you hear what I just said? Now, why does God create evil? Because it becomes the premise that proves his justice. All right. Say, Pastor, help me. Right. You really need help. Right. So when God, when, when, when our, when our, um, when our cities create municipalities, areas where we live, you know what they do when they create uh, buildings for schools and houses from one in zones, every zoning laws, they put up stop signs. And, and, and slow down signs, all that kind of stuff, don't they? They do it for the purpose of order, don't they? Right, because they know that human beings without laws are crazy. Stay with me. But when you get to the corner and you see the stop sign say stop and you run through it and then the police officer pull you over, you have just committed a what? A crime which is equivalent to an evil. Why, pastor? Because there could be a little girl or a little boy in the middle of the street, unawares, and you run through that stop sign and you kill them. Say amen. Amen. This is what we mean. God has to create it in order to prove that he's just. And that sin, which is transgression against God's law, 
hurts everybody but him. Sin doesn't hurt God. That's what Job is saying. Sin doesn't hurt God. Y'all got what I just stated? God's not hurt by our sin. We are. I'm thankful for that stop sign. I'm thankful for that law because it makes sin exceedingly sinful. God's a just God when he gives it, right? And so it's extremely important that you know he creates evil. I, the Lord, do all these things, right? We know he creates good. We know these things. In fact, when he gave us the, the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 2, 17, you guys know that, right? He gave us that tree. Adam didn't create that tree. Who created that tree? He put a stop sign in the garden, didn't he? And when Adam and Eve ran past the stop sign, all hell broke loose. Now, I can hear some ignorant, backwards folks who misrepresent the concept of God's sovereignty going to God and say, God, why didn't you just leave the tree of the knowledge of good and evil out? Everything would have been cool, right? This is where we are in our irrational thinking today. We're back to blaming God. Before he created us, he knew we were going to sin. And so he created a stop sign. So the moment we ran the stop sign, we are now proving that God is true and we're liars. Am I making some sense? All right, let me go on because I told you I wanted to be finished. I got two minutes to go. Listen to the sovereignty of God is not capricious, is not desperate, is not whimsical. Here's what you and I need to know. All power, all powers are in his hand. Do you agree with that? First of all, your master said it in Matthew 28, 18. All power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. This is why you and I shouldn't be complaining. Jesus is in control of all power. You just need to figure out what that's about. All right. Because when we look at our world, it doesn't look like God's in control of a whole lot. He's totally in control. And I'm teaching you how to understand him being in control. A lot of what he allows is in order to shape our character and to humble us and to help us understand our need of God in the process of him working out his will. See what I'm saying? And so not only does Jesus remind the disciples of that, but Proverbs 16, 4. Listen to Proverbs 16, 4. You don't have to, it's in your outline, so don't worry about it. Just hear it in your ear. You need to know this. Notice what it says. The Lord hath made what? Stop right there. The Lord hath made all things, not some things, not most things, everything. Y'all good with that? Right, because listen. If you're God and you tell everybody you made everything, you have a big onus for the stuff that goes down in this world that you made. Am I telling the truth? If you say you made it all, you made Lucifer, you made the fallen angels, you made all of them. Because they were all part of the process of your omniscient plan. So even if they were good angels and didn't collapse, you made them. Am I making sense? Right. And therefore, I have to reconcile him having made them with God having a better plan that includes evil. It includes evil. Did y'all get that? I have to conclude that if God made good angels and some of them fail, but most of them remain, then that was part of God's purpose and plan. Well, that's true of humanity. Right. We've all fallen, but Jesus didn't. That's the plan here. The plan for God was human beings have to fall in order to find out that they're not God in order for them to look to God for the solution of their fall. 
That's where we are today. I know I'm making sense. The Lord made all things, and here's the other problem. He made them for himself. Do you see that? You say, now God is selfish. Well, he's had, he has a right to be selfish. When you're perfect, don't you have a right to be selfish? The rest of us be tripping. Don't we be tripping? Trying to be selfish. God is selfish because he has a right to. He's the only perfect being in the universe. He's the only flawless being, the only impeccable being, the only right being, the only good being, the only all-powerful being, the only loving being. He has a right for it all to be his, you, me, and everybody. We're his. Am I making sense? Right. And he can do with us what he wants. Is that true? He can do with us. Now, Pastor, you're making me feel like I'm a slave. You are. You are a slave. You're a slave. And when you're a slave of God, you're the freest person on the planet. You're the freest person on the planet. You are the freest person on the planet when you're a slave of God. Because your master is a good master. He's a righteous master. He's a kind master. He's a merciful master. He's a gracious master. And he's a wise master. He knows how to get you out of the problem that you're in. And the problem that you and I are in is that the law leads us to a conclusion where we need to confess with David. Psalm 51.4. This is the text. I'm going to close here. We need to confess with David. Now, David was a good man, but he was a really sinful man. I'm talking about your brother. I just want to bring it closer to home. I'm talking about your brother, the one you love, the brother I'd go down in the hood with any day, me and David, any day. Lord, give me David when we walk through West Oakland. Right, right. But you know, if too many chicks out there, I might lose David for a couple hours. I do get it. I do get it. That's why the Lord, Lord, Tie him to me. Tie David to me so we can keep him on track. And David would say, Lord, thank you for Jesse, because Jesse, he 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 knows who I am, right? We all got weaknesses like that. But in in a time of war, I want David. I do not want Solomon. I want David. Context. Everybody got gifts. Everybody got weaknesses, right? I, I don't want a person that don't know how to keep his head on straight in a war. That's why Paul didn't want Mark, little Mark. He didn't like getting hit. Mark didn't like people talking about it. He would have fell completely prey to the woke doctrine today, wouldn't he? His feelings getting all hurt. Later on down the line, Mark is useful. He had to grow up. We're in a warfare. You can't worry about people getting upset with you. Your job is to tell the truth as it is in Jesus. Listen to this. Listen to this. Against you and you only have I what? David said that. That's why David is in glory right now. Am I making some sense? Against you and you only have I done this evil in your sight. Here's the words of Romans 3 now. In order that you might be justified when you speak and clear when you judge. Pastor, what are you talking about? There's a day of judgment coming. When every one of us will have to stand before God and give an answer to the things we have done in our bodies, whether good or bad. And according to Romans chapter 3, verse 19, every person will stand before God's law and every mouth will be stopped. Every tongue will be shut up. Am I making sense? Listen to me now very carefully. When the law lays out its argument against you, when the law shows you as being really guilty as you are, When the law shows all of your thoughts, all of your motives, all of your intents, 
your thoughts, motives, and intent. When the law takes you all the way back to your uh, level of account- accountability at the level in which you can be culpable before God because there's a point when you can't. But once it does and you discover that your sins are infinite, the only right thing to do is shut your mouth. Did y'all get that? You shut your mouth because when you shut your mouth, then God can bring an advocate in to take your place. See, when you have a good lawyer who is your advocate, when he represents you in the court, you know what he tells you to do? Keep your mouth shut. I got this. Right? And so we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous, who not only is standing in our gap before God, but he stood in our behalf before God when our sins were laid on him. And when our sins were laid on him, he shut his mouth. Right. He stood before his shearers dumb. So open not he his mouth. Why didn't he open his mouth? Because he was guilty with my sin. He was guilty with your sin. He was guilty with our sin. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Am I making some sense? Now what you are learning is that God has what we call a stand in righteousness for guilty sinners. It's called the gospel. Either you're going to stand before God on your own grounds. Are you going to have the stand in righteousness of Jesus Christ to represent you before God? The gospel is about the stand in righteousness of Christ. Y'all got that? The stand in. I got a stand in. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. I got a stand in. And so I keep my mouth shut because I'm guilty before God according to his law. But I got a master who has obeyed God's will completely and totally. He's our stand in righteousness. Does anybody need a stand in righteousness? And this is what this essence of point three subpoints A, B, and C underscore. The spirit led confession unto Christ. That's what David just did. He confessed he was a sinner and he sought forgiveness through Christ. Grace is exclusive. Grace is inclusive and grace is exceptional. Did y'all get that? Grace is exclusive in here in, in, in this sense. Jesus said in John 14, 6 and 7, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes unto the father but by me. That means grace is, is exclusive. Did y'all get that? Yeah. Ain't no other way. And then grace is also inclusive. Pastor, what you mean? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty two. 32, God has concluded us all under sin that he might have mercy upon all. Grace is inclusive. Am I making sense? But it's requiring you admitting that you're a sinner. And then grace is exceptional because what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Jesus Christ did by his own death on the tree, meriting a righteousness for us by which we stand before God as if we have not only obeyed all of God's law, but we have never ever sinned at one time. Since Jesus has perfectly obeyed God's law 
and our stand in righteousness is in your hand now. When God looks at you, he sees who? And when he looks at Christ, he sees a perfect slate of absolute impeccable obedience, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. That's why we worship him, because he loved us enough to give himself for us. This is a sinner's gospel. This is a sinner's gospel. And it only works for sinners. Amen.